The Gospel readings from the second book of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take the water that had come to come wine. I'm sorry. Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of the signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. One night in 1992, 29-year-old Auburn Sandstrom was curled in the fetal position on the floor of her apartment in Ann Arbor, Michigan. She was going through withdrawal from a drug addiction. Auburn was the mother to a toddler and she was in danger of losing her son. She'd grown up in a house of privilege, earned a college degree and a master's degree, and now she is in this dark and desperate place. She clutched in her hand a crumpled piece of paper that only had a phone number on it. It had been given to Auburn by her mother. Auburn hadn't spoken to her mother in a few years, but the mother had sent her this number of a Christian counselor. Auburn was so desperate that night that she called the number. And a man answered, Do you think you could talk to me? Auburn said to the voice on the other end of the phone. She could hear the man shifting things around and turning down the radio. Yes, yes, what's going on? Auburn hadn't told the truth to herself or to anyone else for quite some time. But that night she did. She said she was scared. She said that things were bad. She said out loud that she was a drug addict. The man on the other end of the phone listened to her with compassion and without judgment. Tell me more, he would say. That must be very painful, he would say. She called at 2 a.m. and they talked like that until sunrise. As their conversation began winding down, Auburn said to the man on the other end of the phone line, um, aren't you now supposed to give me some Bible verses to read or something? Do I have an assignment? How long have you been a Christian counselor? The man said, I'm going to tell you something now, and you must promise me that you will not hang up. The number you called, it was a wrong number. I'm not a counselor. I'm just a guy you got on the phone. Auburn did not hang up. She also never got the man's name.
All she knew is the next morning, she experienced what she called a peace that passes all understanding, a random, unconditional love, and she said, a connection I could not imagine. Her life did not turn around on a dime, but it did turn around, and she also described that night by saying, in the deepest, bleakest night of despair, it only takes a pinhole of light and all of grace can come in. In our gospel text this morning, Mary goes to her son with a pressing matter. They're at a wedding and the wine has run out. And Jesus said to her, what is this to do with me or with you? I wonder what Jesus' tone of voice was when he said that. I would love to get an audio recording of the original gospel lines. Did Jesus say this with a tone of annoyance? It almost sounds like he's annoyed or has been interrupted. You know, what is this to me and to you? If the man on the other end of Auburn's phone call had said, what is this to me, lady? You have the wrong number. No pinhole of light or grace would have flooded in. So if it wasn't annoyance and it wasn't interruption, there does sound like there's some urgency to this, but urgency for whom? This is the only time, as far as Scripture records, that Jesus attended a wedding. It's interesting, then, that even in the crisis of this wedding, not one word is directed to the bride or to the groom. Jesus doesn't talk to them, and Jesus doesn't talk about them. Why is this text addressed to everybody except the bride and the groom? A Jewish wedding in Jesus' time was not an individual celebration. It was always for the whole village. The wedding lasted the better part of a week, and everybody celebrated together. When Mary drew Jesus' attention, maybe it was because Mary remembered her own wedding. We don't have that recorded in Scripture, but we can use our imagination. With the whole village invited and Mary in her condition, surely Mary experienced those who gossiped about her, those who came out of curiosity, as well as those who loved Joseph and Mary very much. I think Mary was aware of all that might happen if the wine ran out. That means that the celebrations are over. It means the blessings are over. And there would be gossiping and there would be grousing and there would be grumbling and complaining. The community was at risk in that moment, so Mary told her son to fix it. And Jesus said to her, what is this to me and to you? That question asks, do we have something in common here between us? Is there something at stake, some need that we share in this place and in this time? Dealing with this text, almost everybody moves quickly to the miracle. There certainly was a miracle here. What was the miracle? I have to tell you, if the miracle was only Jesus changing water to wine, that would not have lasted for 2,000 years of retelling. No, this miracle was much more. The miracle was one of transformation. The community got transformed because the truth of our lives is wherever Jesus shows up, things get transformed. Whatever needs healing is set on a path of healing because Jesus is present. 
Whatever is treasured in the past gets new luster. Whatever needs changing gets changed. Whatever has been lost gets touched with love. What was impossible is made real by the presence of Jesus. And all our needs to be healed and forgiven and changed and reconciled and comforted and found all get touched by the Son of the living God. Jesus did not talk about or to the couple because Jesus knew that if the community were whole, the couple would be blessed. And if the community was fractured, not one person would escape that wound. That's the wisdom Eugene Peterson draws from when he has said worship is the strategy by which we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and attend to the presence of God. So I'd like to ask each of us for a moment on this holiday weekend, why did you come here to worship today? Are you expecting a miracle? Unfortunately, too often in our worship in churches everywhere, there's kind of a miracle in reverse we can experience. Because we expect too little, the wine becomes water. Too often in our preoccupation or our preferences, we are offered the glory of God. And instead we settle for a pale imitation of something the world has already grown tired of. Worship together is the beginning of wisdom for the church. Worship is the root of spiritual maturity. It is the foundation of fellowship. It is a prerequisite for study. And it is the wellspring of all mission and outreach. David Lowe, president of Luther Seminary, said recently, the question for a Christian in this age isn't finally about some form of self-actualization that our culture adores, but rather discovering that as we give ourselves away in relationship and service, we find a deeper sense of self than we ever imagined possible. We are born for community and find a sense of self and meaning and purpose as we trust God's promises and give ourselves away in love. Jesus answers his own question, what is this to me and to you, by saying it has everything to do with me and with you. And then he offered the entire community gathered a taste of the kingdom of God. The bulletin cover image you have this morning is from the first worship service of Farm Church. Farm Church was started in Durham, North Carolina this past spring by two Presbyterian ministers, Ben Johnson Crace and Alan Brimer. The church is also an urban farm on a, in a corner of Durham. Their worship services have so little to do with sitting in the pews waiting for pastors or for musicians to perform for them. And in fact, there's very little sitting at all. Instead, when Farm Church comes together as a community for worship, they sing and they weed. Uh, they, they pray and they plant. Uh, they, they harvest and they study. And then they gather around a table and share a meal. And through their farm, an integral part of worship is also to address the food insecurity in their corner of Durham. The picture there is of their first Sunday, the genuine sign of welcome right next to the very practical watch your step. Uh, 
that's prudent given their rugged setting, but it strikes me as not a bad pair of signs for any worship service. Welcome and watch your step. We can't just come to worship and assume everything is going to be just like it was last week, last season, last year. Folks couldn't just show up at this wedding celebration in the village and expect it to be business as usual because Jesus was there. And when Jesus is there, things get transformed. That's why being a community takes hard, disciplined work. We have to pay attention. We have to keep our eyes peeled. We have to watch our step because God Almighty is present. And all this we are doing, all this, all this, all this, we do for God. The church word liturgy is a word we use to describe all the elements that go into a worship service, the prayers, the songs, the readings. The word liturgy comes from two Latin words, one meaning people, the other meaning work. Worship is the work of God's people. Now, I'll be honest, most Sundays that work is predictable. We welcome each other. We call each other to worship. We confess all the ways we've not connected what we say in here and here with how we live out there. By confessing our sin at the beginning of worship, we also remind ourselves of God's steadfast promise that there is nothing we can do, there is nothing we can left undone, there is nothing at all in all creation that can offend or anger God to the point that God does not want to draw us to God's own heart. That having received the gift of forgiveness and offered peace to one another in a very unpeaceful world, we're ready to praise God in song and open our hearts and minds to God's word and pray for those in need and to offer God a portion of the resources of our work. True worship together is not, I enjoyed this, that not so much. Rather, it means joining together to share a taste of God's new wine, to share the sense that God is present and therefore is transforming us. What if worship was less about us getting our needs met than about God equipping us to meet the needs of others and the needs of this broken and breaking world? What if God compels each of us each week to come to worship so that we can learn to trust again that truly when Jesus shows up, things change, starting with our own battered souls? What if the real work of worship begins not when we enter the sanctuary, but when we go out those doors. I think all of this, all of this, was on Jesus' mind and on his heart when during this week-long worship celebration in his community, his mother told him the wine had run out. Jesus knew this had everything to do with every person there, because in worship, we do it together or we're not a community. Jesus knew that life together is hard, disciplined work. And it constantly needs the freshness of God's spirit. We need Jesus' presence to transform every single part of us. 
Presbyterian minister Michael Linval tells a story that he remembers when he was growing up with his family in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. I remember with fondness an older couple, he says, who were friends of my parents, John and May Hakala. They were second generation Finns. Before retirement, John had been the manager of the National Wildlife Refuge near Kotzebue in western Alaska. Now, Kotzebue is really remote, remote even for Alaska. In fact, when John and May lived there in the 1950s, the supply ship came in from the outside world just once a year. You can't grow anything that far north, so all your food for the whole year, except for a little bit of local game, had to come in on that boat. Meat, canned goods, flour, sugar, some vegetables, and eggs. Planes flew in, of course, but that was way too expensive to get food that way. So they got all they needed for the whole year in one shipment. They froze what they could and tried to make the rest keep. John and May Hakala loved eggs for breakfast. So every year they would order an entire year's supply of eggs. You can't freeze eggs, but they'll keep pretty well. If you refrigerate them, which is not a problem in Kotzebue, Alaska, refrigerated eggs don't go rotten, but they do, well, change. They change very slowly. Every morning, John and May would enjoy their eggs. They tasted fine. They never noticed a change one day to the next, one week to the next, and then months went by. After 12 months, there they were, eating year-old eggs, waiting for the boat to come with fresh eggs. Finally, the boat would arrive. Can you imagine fresh eggs after eating year-old ones? John and May would get the fresh eggs and fry them up, and you know what? To them, those fried eggs tasted awful. May would say they just wanted to spit them out of their mouths the first few days. She said they'd go and search the fridge to see if there are any year-old eggs left. They'd gotten so accustomed to stale eggs one day at a time that they actually liked them better than fresh. Every host in Jesus' time served the good wine first, of course, assuming that over time, the guest's taste, perhaps somewhat impaired, would be diminished. That's what the world does. That's what the world does to us over time. The world seeks to convince us that if we get what we need, we don't need to worry about anybody else. If we get something out of worship, what is the rest of that to me or to you. We can get used to believing that living with the world as it is, thinking stale eggs are good, that we don't expect anything better from life. But Scripture tells us again and again, it is precisely now, precisely when we think that this is the best the world is going to be, that is when signs and wonders happen. Because when Jesus shows up in the midst of a community, things get transformed. The people in Cana that day were headed for the exits. 
Because the word was the wine had run out, so the celebration was over. The blessings were finished. And then Jesus shows up. And everything for their community was transformed. In fact, more than just transformed, there was so much wine. There was so much joy that it looked like that party was just going to go on and on and on and on and on. Amen.